0: We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday for June 7th, 2022 with Chuck Buck and Dr. Erica Reamer. This 510th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday is brought to you by Find a Code, all of the most complete and easy-to-use software for medical coders, helping to save time, increase revenue, and avoid denials. Check it out at findacode.com slash talk10. On today's special 60-minute program, we'll hear from Shannon DeConda, Rose Dunn, Cheryl Erickson, Dennis Jones, Lori Johnson, Dr. James Kennedy, Kevin Lasser, Timothy Powell, Stanley Nockimson, Brianna Santoli, and Dr. John Zellum. Now here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and a man whose motto is hot Funk, cool punk, even if it's old junk, it's still rock and roll to me, Chuck Buck.
1: <laughs> Thanks, Clark Anthony, very, very much. Yes, yeah, still rock and roll. Welcome to the 510th Live Edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and good morning, Erica.
2: Thank you, Chuck, and good morning, everyone.
1: And Erica, thanks so much for hosting all the Talk 10 Tuesday broadcasts while I was away. Boy, you did all the hosting by yourself and without a partner.
2: Well, it was great fun, but you were missed, and we're glad you're back.
1: Well, thank you very much. And I also want to uh, thank Cheyenne Lundy, who produced the broadcast while I was away, and I especially want to thank all the caregivers at Kaiser Permanente who were so dedicated to my well-being.
2: And we are grateful to them, too. What are we doing today, Chuck?
1: Well, today we have a special 60-minute live edition of Tech to Tuesday. It's going to be a comprehensive report on codes, HIM, CDI, revenue cycle, and, of course, compliance. And you have a talk back. What are you going to be reporting today?
2: I'm going to share some thoughts that came out of attending CMSA's annual conference.
1: Very good. Looking forward to hearing your talk back, Erica. We have much news to report and begin this morning
0: with Tim Powell. Tim's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by Find the Code, home of the most complete and easy-to-use software for medical coders helping to save time, increase revenue, and avoid denials. More online at findthecode.com talk10. Here
3: now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck. And H.R. 1319, otherwise known as the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021, was passed on March 11th of 2021. Today, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services is notifying states that they have an additional year through March 31st of 2025 to use funding made available by the American Rescue Plan to enhance, expand and strengthen home and community based services for people with Medicaid who need long term services and support. Everyone deserves the dignity to live in their own homes and communities, and the Biden-Harris administration is committed to protecting the right, said HHS Secretary Xavier Becerra. Thanks to extending the funding from President Biden's American Rescue Plan. We are expanding home and community-based services for millions of aging Americans and people with disabilities across the country, and we are working hand-in-hand with states to ensure that they have the time and the support they need to strengthen their home care services and workforce. The COVID-19 pandemic has exposed the risks of institutional and congregate congregate settings for older Americans and people with disabilities, underscoring the urgent need to expand access to high quality home and community-based services and improve outcomes for people who need long-term care services and supports. As a primary funder of the HCBS, Medicaid does pay a critical role in supporting the state's efforts to strengthen these services for their beneficiaries. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim
1: is now with Bessler Consulting, and he is also the national correspondent for ICD-10 Monitor. It's Tuesday. It's June 7th, and you're listening to the 510th live edition of Talked in Tuesday. Stand by.
0: The extensive resources available from Find-A-Code make finding the correct codes easier than ever allowing you to process more claims more accurately and in less time. Find-a-Code lets you build a flexible, personalized package of tools that specifically meet your needs. Choose one of three subscription levels, then customize your subscription by adding more specific code references, guides, policies, reports, and exclusive Find-a-Code tools. You get the most value for your money by buying only what you need. Find a Code's online libraries include extensive information for all major code sets, along with a wealth of supplemental materials such as newsletters and manuals. It's all indexed, searchable, and organized for quick access and extensive cross-referencing. Find a Code, the most complete and easy-to-use software for coding professionals, helping to save time, increase revenue, and avoid denials. See everything Find a Code has to offer at findacode.com slash talk10. That's findacode.com slash talk ten.
1: Now's the time for the Talk 10 Tuesday coding report with Lori Johnson and good morning Lori Johnson.
4: Good morning and welcome back, Chuck. Good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. CMS released the fiscal year twenty-three ICD 10 PCS codes and updated the guidelines. Um, and that release was on May twenty-sixth. There are 331 new procedure codes and 64 deleted codes. The guidelines have added guideline B3.19, which is detachment procedure of the extremities, and revised B4.1, which is a procedure on tubular body parts, and B6.1A, which is a general um, coding on the device. The new B3.19 guideline provides detailed instruction regarding the, princi- the, regarding the coding of complete and partial amputation of the extremities. The revision to guideline B4.1C is further specification that when a vascular procedure is performed on a continuous section of an artery or vein, that the body part value for the anatomically most proximal or closest to the heart should be used. An example is the procedure on a continuous section of an artery or vein from the femoral artery to the external iliac artery with the point of entry at the femoral artery is coded to the external iliac body part. If the entry point was coded at the external iliac it would be coded as the external iliac body part as well. The update to B6.1A is a minor change which documents to code the insertion and removal of a device when the intent is for the device to remain after the procedure, but that device needs to be removed prior to the end of the procedure due to inadequate size or a documented complication. The new PCS codes include the topics of destruction by laser interstitial thermal therapy. And these codes were actually changed. They originally appeared in the radiology section. Those radiology section codes have been deleted and new codes have been created in the med surge section. Um, Also, just continuing on the topics, extraction of the cerebellum placement of aortic valve using rapid deployment technique, the occlusion of prostatic artery, transfer of small intestine, removal of infusion device from the skull, drainage of the neck, introduction of other therapeutic monoclonal antibodies, introduction of other therapeutic substances into the bones, assistance with cardiac oxygenation supersaturated, fusion of the sacroiliac joint with a tulip connector, infusion or transfusion of substances in the new technology group 8, and measurement of the coronary artery flow. There's, so there's lots of new codes to, to um, consider beginning October first, 2022. And with that, Erica, back to you.
2: Thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior health care consultant at Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC.
1: Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Lori Johnson, thanks again for an excellent report. You know, when it comes to evaluation and management issues, E&M issues, we immediately call upon Shannon DeConda. Shannon joins us now to report on some of the ongoing trouble areas of the 2021 documentation guidelines. Shannon, welcome to the broadcast. And what are some of those problems?
5: Good morning, Mr. Chuck. And good morning to everyone. On this ominous segment of Talk 10 Tuesday, I thought it would be appropriate to take a four-score and seven years ago look across ENM services, looking to what we had, what we have, and what is to come. And a very quick and powerful four-minute segment. So buckle up. So to begin today's segment, I will rewind the clock to our pre-Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial days, to the pre-2021 documentation guideline changes. And so for most of you listening to this, that's your current world. You know, those of you whose providers are, well, kind of stuck here, they're using their templates in eClinicalWorks or Epic or Cerner that were created to meet archaic office-based documentation guidelines that are no longer required. You know HPI, ROS, PFSH, 8-point body system exams, but you know money, time, and perseverance were used to create those templates. And I certainly understand that, but it's time to help our providers understand the power of the documentation addressing the problems addressed today during today's encounter, just as they do behind the closed doors. This is the expectation of 2021 documentation guidelines. What we currently have within 2021 documentation guidelines is a set of documentation guidelines that is, for the most part, well defined. But in this auditor's opinion, is in no way a final product. They are important terms and gray areas left undefined that caused carrier discrepancies and, in many cases, all-out coder brawls inside organizations. Take prescription drug management, for example. Many MACs have defined Rx management as the initiation, discontinuation, modification, or continuation of a prescription drug, but why didn't the AMA take the opportunity to include this definition to create an alliance? However, they included... A definition of a chronic problem that most clinicians disagree with, and when we read it to clinicians, they shake their head and think we as coders are crazy. We need to ensure that 2021 documentation guidelines become a living and breathing document document, just as the CPT is and not a final product. Where are we going with E&M services in 20, especially in 2023 as we look at the expansion of 2021 documentation into other lines of ENM, I think personally I am most relieved to see the incorporation of the rules into the ED space. The mixed carrier interpretation around new problem with additional workup leads to an unfair bias to a provider who may be really concerned with patient care and not the difference between a Level 4 and a Level 5. Our providers don't always know the payer, and NamUs has often been a third-party reviewer on behalf of a carrier and provider dispute, noting there is a variance in carrier interpretation. How can we expect a provider to care for a patient in a life-saving event? and know the variation of rules and frankly care about that at that given moment. Moving beyond the need for such interpretations will be such a welcome change. Dr. Reamer, I don't believe twenty twenty one documentation guidelines will solve all of the ENM problems within all of the types and variations and places of service we have, especially if it's like ninety-five and ninety-seven documentation guidelines and they're written and there are no further updates or rewrites. So let's hope that these guidelines are better maintained and updated. And with that, I'll give it back to you.
2: Thanks, Shannon. And I have to say I agree. I think that there are pieces and parts of the 2021 guidelines uh, that AMA designed that we will probably see some updates in 2023 when they roll them out elsewhere. That was Shannon DeConda. Shannon is the founder of NamUs. The National Alliance of Medical Auditing Specialists. Chuck:
1: Thank you, Erica, and uh, thank you so very much. Anna Deconde. It was great to have you back on our program. We continue our national hymn, coding, and CDI roundup, and here now with the first of two reports on CDI is Cheryl Erickson. Good morning, Cheryl. Good morning,
6: Chuck, and good morning, listeners. You know, recently a client reached out to me to ask about retrospective queries. The provider was uncomfortable responding to a mortality query because he thought it was fraudulent. I'm sure this isn't the first time a CDI professional has been faced with a provider who thought the query process was nefarious, but it made me realize the importance of educating providers about why we query. And ensuring our query process supports a compliant record amendment process. That's right, I'm talking about record amendment processes, something that CDI professionals with a nursing background may be less familiar with compared to their HIM counterparts. That's why in my next article, I'm going to discuss elements to consider when constructing uh, their retrospective query process. The proliferation of CDI professionals has moved the query process forward to a concurrent process from its origins as a retrospective process that occurred during the coding process. But there's still a subset of queries which are often related to quality on performance of care measures like mortality that are issued retrospectively. Most processes for identifying cases that might be included in quality of care measures are post-discharge, if not retrospective, because the quality of care measures are identified by ICD-10 codes and ICD-10 PCS codes that are included on the claim. Consequently, CDI professionals often become involved with quality of care measures after the fact, and providers are likely to continue to see those retrospective queries. So the question is, are there rules related to retrospective queries? Unfortunately, like many things in CDI, there's not one clear source with a definitive answer. Yes, retrospective queries are allowable, and as I mentioned, that's where we started with the query process. But is there a deadline as to how long after discharge the query can be asked? Not really. It's hard to find an answer, so it's best to examine guidelines associated with making changes to the medical record, and that's why it's important to understand the rules related to record amendments. First, it's important to note that providers do have an obligation to adhere to general principles of medical record documentation. The Medicare Program Integrity Manual states all services provided to beneficiaries are expected to be documented in the medical record at the time they are rendered. Occasionally, certain entries related to services provided are not properly documented. In this event, the documentation will need to be amended, corrected, or entered after the rendering services. And this seems to apply a lot to those retrospective queries. Now, record-keeping principles, which is, what, as, which is what defines how those records are amended, applies to both paper and electronic health records that contain amendment corrections or late entries, which are the three ways the provider can compliantly alter their documentation within the health record. Although many organizations allow providers to respond directly on a query, depending on the timing of the query, like if it's concurrent versus retrospective, best practices would add any retrospective query response as an addendum to the health record to comply with record keeping principles. The risk adjustment data validation contractors who support audits related to the Medicare Advantage Program clearly state. The desired outcome from a query is an update, and that update can be a late entry, addendum, or approved query form per individual medical record facility of the documentation policy of a health record to better reflect the practitioner's intent and clinical thought process documented in a manner that supports accurate code assignment. This addition, how the record should update, should occur in the form of an addendum. It's an important addition to any organization's query process. If the provider is not required to amend the discharge summary to support a retrospective query, then the query form should be designated to act as an addendum to the health record and meet all the record-keeping principles. Erica, back to you.
2: Thanks, Cheryl. That was Cheryl Erickson. Cheryl is the Director of CDI Utilization Management and Case Management for the Brundage Group. Chuck?
1: Thanks, Erica. And no discussion of CDI would be complete without a report from Dr. James Kennedy, who joins us now from Nashville. Uh, good morning, Dr. Kennedy. Welcome to the broadcast.
7: Well, thank you. And uh, today we would like to go over the coding clinic second quarter 2022 that came out last Friday, uh, June 3rd, and is effective as of that date. So therefore, the situations that I'm going to bring up are uh, effective now and should be considered. Number one, coding clinic made it very clear that pressure injuries to mucosal surfaces surfaces such as the urethra, the mouth, the lips are not coded as skin or sub-Q skin pressure injuries. Stage two, stage three, stage four. And we run into this like with patients with uh, uh, catheters, patients with endotracheal tubes, where the tube will be will cause a pressure injury to a mucosal surface. Those are not to be coded as skin or sub-Q pressure injuries that could trigger a PSI three or a hack or those sorts of things. So pay special attention uh, to whether or not the pressure injury occurred on skin or mucosal injuries. Second, they made it clear that deep tissue pressure injuries that are present on admission that are later found to be a stage 4 pressure injury at the same location is coded as a stage 4 POA. So this is, uh, again, very helpful uh, in the PSIs, in the uh, hack algorithms. We want to be sensitive to that. Number three, they made it clear that if a patient has a previous history of ventricular fibrillation, has an AICD in place as a way of intervening should v occur, the fact that the AICD is in place does not allow the coding of ventricular fibrillation during the current encounter unless there is evidence that the AICD is firing. So therefore, they, that's a very important concept. Uh, they did reference the previous coding clinic as it relates to pacemakers uh, treating uh, sick sinus syndrome, but and, and I encourage your consideration of that. Number four, purpural sepsis. This is an extremely com- uh, a compl- complicated concept. They made it very clear that purpural sepsis is a localized infection of the, of the genital tract, the uterus, the fallopian tubes, in a lady that just delivered a baby. It does not involve an infection of the urinary tract. Uh, they made it clear that the CDC will look into restructuring the 0 085 codes in the future. However, if you're uh, looking at peripartum or postpartum infections, you will want to be sensitive to this. Documentation of Class 3 obesity can be coded as morbid obesity without the physician having to say morbid obesity. If you need a reference for this, go to the CDC.gov. Class 3 obesity is defined by the CDC, and we would want to be sensitive to that. they then went into the, uh, the use of, radio, uh, of a radio embolization of the right hepatic lobe using a radioisotope. Uh, the PCS procedure code for this is not occlusion because uh, they, it, it was the administration of the radioisotope. By definition, embolization is introducing small particles into the circulation, rather than just a a liquid. Uh, coding Clinic reaffirmed, for those of you who are into HCC coding, they reaffirmed previous Coding Clinic advice of Coding Clinic 3rd Quarter 2021, pages 32 to 33, Coding Clinic 3rd Quarter 2020, page 33, and that chronic conditions cannot be coded unless the physician explicitly documents how that chronic condition affected the, the the monitoring, the evaluation, the assessment, and the treatment during that encounter. For example, if the patient has diabetes and is on insulin, we cannot code the diabetes just from the presence of it on the problem list or the medication. The doctor has to explicitly state that the insulin is being used to treat the diabetes. So there's a number of other areas in this. Uh, this will likely come to your encoding uh, software very, very soon. Pay attention to the new coding clinic. There's some pearls in there that I believe will up your game in coding and CDI. Back to you, Erica.
2: Thanks, Jim. That was very useful information. That was Dr. James Kennedy. He is the founder of CDIMD in Nashville.
1: We're going to shift our focus now from CDI to revenue cycles, specifically the release of information, and later a report from Dennis Jones on the increased volume of managed care DRG denials. But how here is the legendary Rose Dunn with the Dunn Report.
8: Well, welcome back, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. You know, when we hear release of information, we usually think of health information management, the HIM department. However, release of information is done by others throughout our organizations. Registration may release information to payers to secure eligibility. Case management releases information to nursing homes to secure placement for patients, Patient financial services, or PFS, may release information to support a claim. Release of information, or ROI, has a significant impact on the revenue cycle. Today, I want to dive into how ROI can assist patient financial services. When we speak of ROI in this context, it's under the HIPAA umbrella of treatment payment and operations, specifically payment. Just as we are experiencing with other departments in our healthcare organizations, HIM is short staffed, and some activities are not occurring as timely as they had been before COVID. Those of you that routinely listen to Monitor Monday or Talk 10 know the payers are ramping up their audits and requests for records. Some options that healthcare organizations can consider to address release of information demands include training others in the organization on proper ROI practices. PFS is a function that needs to address multiple requests from payers for copies of records to evaluate the claim. Some payers require copies for each claim, such as workers' comp, while others may require copies for claims of a certain value, such as requiring a copy of a record for claims over 50,000. Expecting HIM to deal with each of these would be quite a burden, create workflow challenges, and may not be completed in a timely fashion. So allowing PFS to release documents to support the claim or to support an appeal of a payer's denial makes efficiency sense. Certain payers also conduct HEDIS reviews. In the past, the reviewers came on site and reviewed the records to abstract the various measures. However, now Organizations queue the electronic records requested for remote access by the HEVIS reviewers. This approach eliminates the need for HIM to send the records to the reviewer. Another option is one where some organizations have extended EHR access rights to payers, yes, I said payers, to access records of their insured patients. Typically, a designated payer employee is authorized to access the records without making a request to PFS or HIM. This approach requires the records, uh, requires the tailoring of access rights to only those patients who are insured by the payer, excluding encounters that the individual has restricted and automatically logging the access. The tailored access route may also need to exclude access to certain tests or conditions. Regardless, there's a significant labor lift for PFS, and if this option is being considered, be certain to check your state regulations to ensure there are no restrictions to doing so. Another option is extending access rights to designated office staff of providers on your medical staff. This is fairly common. This will facilitate patient care and reduce requests by physician office billing staff for copies of the records. Finally, it's time for organizations to expand the number and types of documents available on the portal. HIM needs to aggressively push this expansion. Consideration of alternatives is necessary to allow all of us to do more with less, continue to support our revenue cycle, and comply with federal and state regulations. Please see my article on this topic for more information. Back to you, Erica. Thank you,
2: Rose. That was Rose Dunn, COO of First Class Solutions.
1: And we continue our comprehensive review of HIM coding and CDI with a report now filed by Dennis Jones. And good morning, Dennis. Welcome back to Talk 10 Tuesday.
9: <laughs> Thanks, Chuck. Thanks for inviting me back. Um, this is exciting. Um, uh, here's my topic today. It is about uh, DRG downgrades. In the spirit of summer evenings spent at church carnivals or on the boardwalk down the shore, as we say in New Jersey, there is a game that insurance companies play with providers. It is a game that, by definition, hospitals can never win. Anyone who's been to a street fair or carnival is probably familiar with the maddening game of whack-a-mole. The idea of the game is to spot the mole when he jumps out of the hole and whack it with a big foam mallet, but when you do... Another mole pops out of another hole, and then another one, and then another one. The insurance plan version of whack-a-mole has long been a favorite for payers. Insurance companies will find an area of vulnerability in the documentation or billing process for hospitals. And when hospitals zero in on that issue and successfully address it, the payers just switch focus to another issue. And when that hole is patched or mole is whacked, I'm mixing my metaphors, uh, there is a new issue, and then another and then another. For hospitals, it goes like this Take documenting the medical necessity of inpatient hospital stays. Hospitals have admittedly learned to document medical necessity better. Hospitals have also learned to submit more effective appeals to medical necessity denials. I can remember when a benchmark of 33% sex success rate in overturning medical necessity denials was thought to be pretty reasonable. No longer. Overturning medical necessity denials at rates exceeding 50% is now considered the norm. Part of the success in appealing medical necessity denials comes from better internal practices. Increased investment in case management nurses and utilization review software and other resources has created an improved concurrent medical necessity documentation process and internal audit system for hospitals. A prominent and very public display of the effectiveness of hospitals' ability to argue their case for the appropriate billing of inpatient services provided to Medicare beneficiaries has been demonstrated with the RAC program. RAC auditors challenged inpatient service status with the ferocity of organizations who were being paid a percentage of any money they recovered from providers. Infamously, RACs targeted medical necessity issues – Not that the actual services were inappropriate, but rather that they were delivered in the wrong setting. Payment for inpatient hospital services were targeted for recoupment in amounts totaling billions of dollars nationwide. However, the billions in recoupments that were reported were gross amounts prior to the resolution of the provider appeal process. At the end of the appeal process, a process that included a final external level of appeal submitted to an administrative law judge... Hospitals reportedly overturned 74% of the appeal denied claim recoupments, according to an article in Fierce Healthcare. In challenging medical necessity denials from managed care payers, hospitals still win in excess of 50% of their appeals, thanks largely to a federal provision that requires an external level of appeals. According to CMS regulations, insurance companies in all states must offer an external review process that meets the federal consumer protection standards. New York's external appeal law allows healthcare consumers and providers to seek an impartial review, in quotes, in any case where a health plan denies coverage for care it determines is not medically necessary or when a health plan denies a treatment or service because it is experimental or investigational in nature. If your insurer or HMO denies healthcare services as not medically necessary or experimental or investigational or out of network, you have the right to file an external appeal. The external review process is usually carried out by a state or federally designated independent review organization. The actual process has to follow certain guidelines and there may be a price associated with filing an external review. But the thing that providers are no but the thing is Providers are no longer forced to ask Payer X to change their mind on a decision made by Payer X to not pay for services. An independent organization, one without any financial incentives, makes the final determination on the appropriateness of the care and the setting of the care provided. Making good use of the external appeal option has allowed tenacious hospitals to approach and even surpass the 50% success rate for medical necessity appeals. As a result, it seems that insurance companies have put put on their carnival barker hats and returned to the whack-a-mole strategy that they love. If hospitals have learned how to more successfully overturn medical necessity denials, it's time to pop up and taunt them from a new hole. My hospital experienced more DRG denials from two payers in the first five months of this year than we had from all payers in the previous three years. The recoupments are significant. The average amount recouped per account was approximately $6,200. Other hospitals in our health system and in our region are reporting similar DRG denial rates. Like most areas in complex hospital count denials, there are a lot of gray areas in the DRG denials that we've received. Terms like complete or clear when describing documentation can mean different things to different reviewers. How much documentation is required to appropriately reflect the patient's clinical condition? A coder's interpretation of clear documentation of a disease may be interpreted as ambiguous by an aggressive auditor. I am sorry to say that our success rate for overturning DRG denials so far this year is only about 15%. I asked our HIS department, how could this be? Did we suddenly forget how to code? And did we only forget how to code for patients insured by two specific insurance companies? And the answer was no, we didn't forget how to code. We also are not assigning the coding of accounts based on payer or insurance plan. We strongly disagree with the interpretation of coding guidelines used by these payer auditors. And important, and importantly, unlike medical necessity denials, providers do not automatically have the option of taking these upheld denials to a designated independent review organization. Remember the wording and the regulation that that establishes the right for external review of of insurance denials? If your insurer or HMO denies healthcare services as not medically necessary, experimental, investigational, or out of network, you have the right to file an external appeal. Well, DRG denials are none of these things. No beneficiary is being denied treatment or an inpatient level of care. This is only the insurance company determining that, in their opinion, the DRG assigned to this account is not fully supported by the documentation. So unlike in the process of appealing a medical necessity denial, unless your hospital's managed care contractors had the foresight to see this potential mole leaping up out of this particular hole, your only option is to appeal to payer X to please change their mind about the denial in this claim that was assigned by payer X and the financial incentives associated to that decision-making process do not need to be explained. Hospitals will not have many options as DRG denial rates increase. Already, most hospitals have active CDI programs and multiple levels of DRG validation. It seems that physician education, good luck with that, in the tactics of DRG denials and an increased reliance on queries, both concurrent and post-discharge, To clarify, any diagnosis that appears the slightest bit ill-defined are two of the only means that hospitals have to combat the the subjective dismissal of diagnosis codes. Long-term, hospitals should review their managed care contracts and build the same external review protections into the contracts that they have for medical necessity and coverage denials. Ultimately, you can't win this game of insurance plan whack-a-mole. As fast as you can drop the mallet on one pesky mole's head, another one is sure to pop up at a place you don't expect. You will not go home with a cool t-shirt or a fluffy unicorn, but if you are quick to respond to GRG denials and whatever follows, you can keep the doors open and the lights on at your hospital. Back to you, Erica. I hope the lights are on where you are.
2: They sure are, Dennis. Thanks, but it sounds like you guys are really having a frustrating time, and I'm sorry to hear that. That was Dennis Jones. Dennis is the Administrator of Patient Financial Services at Montefiore Nyack Hospital in Nyack, New
1: York. Chuck. Thank you both. And I want to add a program note Dennis Jones is one of the earliest panelists on Monitor Money when we first began our broadcasting back in 2010. And standing by is our longtime regulatory correspondent, Stanley Nockinson. But a program reminder you're listening to the 510th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by.
0: Dramatic constant change is now the norm for society and for healthcare. With so much upheaval, you must adopt new practices and protocols, including how you access continuing education. In person conferences are not always possible, but it's important to stay current with ICD 10 coding best practices and the latest rules, and CEUs are still needed to maintain professional credentials. Get critical continuing education today with a subscription to ICD-10 Monitor educational webcasts. For one affordable annual fee, everyone on your team gets access to dozens of exclusive ICD-10 Monitor webcasts on a comprehensive range of timely topics. Is an ICD-10 Monitor subscription right for you? Visit icd10monitor.com to learn more about a webcast subscription. Now is the time
1: for Reg Watch, featuring nationally recognized healthcare technology consultant Stanley Knockerson. Good morning, Stanley. CMS released the IPPS proposal. What else do we need to know? Good morning,
10: Chuck. Welcome back, and good morning to everyone. We do spend a lot of time on this program speaking about the need for accurate CDI and for uh, accurate coding, mostly for the purposes of accurate reimbursement from health plans to providers. But it's also important to recognize that our clinical documentation and our coding is used by many health plans and researchers to help measure the quality of care that our patients get. Uh, In that line, the CMS National Quality Strategy has just been released uh, by the organization. It's noted as a person-centered approach to improving quality. Just wanted to talk about where CMS is looking to improve the quality of care that they're giving Medicare beneficiaries and Medicaid beneficiaries and assure uh, our audience that uh, their documentation and coding is an essential part of that. Uh, CMS's national quality strategy at a glance, embedding quality into the care journey, uh, promoting safety, advancing health equity. We've talked about that in a number of the Uh, regulations on Medicare payments, CMS is putting forth that goal to address the disparities and injustices, as and I'll quote for them, that underlie and permeate our health system both within and across settings to ensure equitable access and care for all. Their boldest goal, promoting safety, strives to prevent all harm or death from health care errors, which remain a significant source of injury and death. CMS wants to foster engagement among providers, individuals, and their families to promote informed and collaborative decision-making. They're also interested in strengthening the resiliency of the healthcare system. It's important uh, to define what resiliency means to providers, from physicians to nurses to medical assistants, to promote sustainable cultural change across the healthcare system that embraces individual values and empowers all staff to deliver quality care. CMS wants to embrace the digital age and is focusing on electronic data and the ability to communicate across systems to promote seamless care coordination and communication. They want to incentivize innovation and technology adoption to drive care improvements and Their last goal, increasing alignment, in which they talk about the current programs, performance metrics, and policies can sometimes be confusing or burdensome, realizing this can be compounded by needless duplication or lack of alignment. CMS, therefore, will endeavor to develop a seamless, coordinated, and transparent approach to align performance metrics, quality improvement efforts, programs, um, and payment across CMS federal affiliates, states and territories, and the private sector to improve value. Uh, Very interesting set of goals for CMS and the nation's healthcare system as a whole. Also want to uh, talk about the CMS recent analysis of the Medicare Part B premium. Uh, This year there was a great increase in the Part B B premium uh, because of the fact that CMS thought they would have to cover Uh, a particular uh, drug um, at at Duhelm uh, and similar drugs to help treat Alzheimer's disease. However, uh, they decided not to cover this drug um, in all cases, only only in uh, clinical studies. Therefore, the expenses to the Medicare program uh, will have lessened. And what CMS will do is use the savings to and apply that to the fiscal year 2023, next year's uh, Medicare premium, so, uh, so our beneficiaries can expect to see a reduction in their costs. A couple of other updates on standards, some things that I spend a lot of time on. Um, the X-12 organization is expected to announce sometime in the next several weeks or, or so their recommendation for upgrading to the next version of standards. We've been on 5010, quite a while. Uh, the industry has changed. Uh, X12 has done a lot of work. Um, so, we're anticipating a recommendation for moving to a later version of the standard. So, look for that over the next several weeks. And also this week, the National Committee on Vital and Health Statistics will be holding a, a hearing, a discussion with a number of organizations on the best ways to move healthcare standards, especially administrative standards, forward using. Uh, some of the new technologies that are in development today, moving from the batch uh, submissions that we're used to, to more of an app-based, internet-based way of submitting claims and other transactions. So thanks for this opportunity. And uh, Chuck, let me turn it back to you. Thanks, Stanley, very much for that uh,
1: report. It's an excellent report, by the way. Uh, we continue our national
10: coverage of him coding at
1: CDI with a report now on revenue cycle and the revenue you should be keeping. Here now is Kevin Lasser with more on this very important topic.
11: Well, thank you so much, Chuck. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to your audience today. So let's talk about post payment audits, or specifically RACs, ADRs, MACs, ZPICs, et cetera. Of course, regardless of what you call it, A post-payment audit is after the fact. So as a healthcare provider, you have been paid, and now you are under the very real threat of getting that money taken back. So let's look at post-payment audits and what that looks like in today's unique environment. The first step in the process is getting a letter from a payer, something commonly known as an additional documentation request. This requires a certain number of days to respond, typically 45 days. Now, we know that if you choose not to respond to that letter, the revenue from the procedure under question is taken back. Additionally, by not responding, an assumption of guilt is made by the payer, which may result in many requests for documentation for similar procedures. So, it is imperative that the provider responds. While there are many different shapes and sizes of healthcare providers today, we will be generalists. So who handles these post-payment audits at a given provider? Somebody or a team of people inside a revenue cycle management department will respond. Today, the people to handle these are shrinking as budget cuts have been instituted. IMED claims stated efforts to reduce hospital workforces during the pandemic have forced revenue cycle teams to redeploy existing staff to new areas. One consequence of this shift is that there is no suitable expertise to master complex and ever-changing payment standards. In our many conversations, we have learned a reduction in workforce in the RCM departments ranging from 15% to 70%. Simply stated, there are fewer people to address these often complex audits. This is equally troubling when you combine the fact that the audits are on the rise. According to Medicare audits, they estimate that post-payment audits have risen over 900% over the last five years. And there is no wonder for this, as Compliance and Auditing Auditing Services has stated that for every $2 a payer invests in post-payment audit activity, they get a $17 return. Chuck, that is a $700 and 50% return on investment. So with the increased activity in these audits and fewer people to respond, what tools are healthcare providers using to combat these audits? The answer is startling, Excel spreadsheets. Revenue Intelligence estimates that over 31% of hospital systems use Excel to manage these audits. Ben Regal, a 20-year veteran in revenue cycle management, and the founder of RCM Leaders Forum stated, in his experience, that number was much higher. Lastly, and perhaps most importantly, without a real system to handle the post-payment audits, there also exists a lack of reporting capabilities. This is troublesome to upper management for reporting purposes. Additionally, it is much more difficult, if not impossible, to address inefficiencies in a process when you are working. In Excel spreadsheet. In summary, to quote Melissa Powell, the COO of Genesis Healthcare, in how healthcare technology can impact operation, she states, while technological enhancements can result in greater clinical outcomes, that is only part of the equation. Their impact can also be felt on the operational side, and given the challenges that lie ahead, that can make all the difference in the world. Well said, Ms. Powell. Thank you. Back to you, Erica.
2: Thanks, Kevin. That was Kevin Lasser. Kevin is the CEO of RevKeep.
1: Chuck? Thank you both, and be sure to read Kevin's article on how to keep the revenue your facility has earned in today's ICD-10 monitor.
0: When can you report both evaluation and management, ENM, and the procedure in the same patient encounter? It's one of the most common questions from coders. One misstep and you could be looking at a payer denial or edit, even when the charges are truly legitimate. The key to capturing payment for both services is knowing when the provider has delivered a significant and separately identifiable E&M service and having the documentation to prove it. Join us for an exclusive ICD-10 Monitor webcast to learn what constitutes a significant and separately identifiable E and M service and what documentation you need to support it. This important webcast is june twenty second at 1.30 PM Eastern. Register now at the ICD University Bookstore.
1: Coming up, Talk Law with Healthcare Attorney Brianna Santoli.
0: TalkLaw is sponsored by HITEX, a clinical informatics organization dedicated to bringing the most advanced technology and people to assist healthcare professionals at the point of care. To provide proactive workflow assistance to clinical documentation integrity, computer-assisted physician documentation, and clinical decision support. All HITEX products are integrated into the Epic EHR front-end user interface. Find them at HITEX.com. Here now is Brianna Santoli.
12: Thanks, Chuck. Today, I'm here to tell you about a recent legal decision that demonstrates if patient financial responsibility forms are not clear and understandable to the patient, then it may cost you. The case is French versus Centura Health Corporation, and after many years of litigation and appeals, the Colorado Supreme Court rejected a hospital's right to balance bill an out-of-network patient for elective surgery charges. In particular, the court held that the patient never consented to pay the facility's bill charges and that the hospital's standard template agreement, which required the patient to be responsible for all charges not covered by insurance, was insufficient to incorporate by reference the hospital's charge master. Instead, the court found that the patient and the hospital did not agree to the price of services and that it was up to the jury to determine what a reasonable price should have been under the circumstances. The dispute between the patient, Lisa Melody French, and Centura arose from a spinal fusion surgery. Before performing the procedure, Centura reviewed the patient's insurance and informed her that she would be responsible for an in-network out-of-pocket cost-sharing payment of $1,337. After services were rendered, Centura realized that it had misread Miss French's insurance card and that she was actually out-of-network. The hospital then billed her the difference of the bill charges for the services and the payment for out-of-network benefits, which amounted to a whopping $229,000. When Ms. French refused to pay, Centura sued her for breach of contract based upon her agreement to pay for any charges for her care not covered by insurance. Although the relevant document made no express reference to the facility's charge master, it did state that the patient agreed to pay all charges of the hospital, which Centura argued included the charge master rates. However, the Colorado Supreme Court disagreed and concluded that the charge master was not incorporated by reference into the patient's agreement to pay for services. The court held that for incorporation by reference to be effective, it must be clear that the parties to the agreement had knowledge of and assented to the incorporated terms. Because it was unclear whether Ms. French had knowledge of or assented to paying Centura's charge master rates, it could not be incorporated into the health services agreement by reference. As the charge master rates did not apply, the Colorado Supreme Court concluded that there was no price term agreed to between the patient and the hospital. Accordingly, the court held that Ms. French was only required to pay $767 to the hospital which is the amount that the jury determined to be a reasonable value of the services provided in its 2018 verdict. It is important to note that many of Centura's arguments attempted to shift the burden to the patient. In that regard, Centura argued that the patient failed to avail herself of the resources afforded by the Colorado statutes addressing transparency of hospital pricing. However, the court was not persuaded and held that the statutes did not place a burden on patients, but instead placed the burden on hospitals to disclose facility charges to patients. Centura also argued that it had no responsibility to understand the patient's insurance better than the patient does, but the court didn't agree. What is the takeaway? That for hospitals and providers, ignorance is not bliss. While an extreme example of a balance billing nightmare, this case underscores the importance of the Federal No Surprises Act, which became effective on January 1, 2022, and prohibits surprise out-of-network bills for emergency and some non-emergency medical services. Thanks for tuning in to Talk Law with me. Back to you, Erica.
2: Thanks, Brianna. That was Brianna Fantoli. Brianna is a healthcare attorney and litigator with the firm of Riker Danzig.
1: We begin a new series here at Talk 10 Tuesdays called Journaling
0: John, Dr. John Zellum. Sponsored by the MedLearn Publishing Resource Center. At the center, get unlimited access to every MedLearn media resource in the libraries of MedLearn Publishing, ICD-10 Monitor, and Rack Monitor, all from one convenient location. Learn more at shop.medlearn.com.
1: Each Tuesday, we feature a journal entry from Dr. John Zellum. Here now with his first entry is Dr.
13: John Zellum. Thanks, Chuck, and good morning to everybody. My topic today is, is your restaurant in-network? And this goes along with the previous talk about the No Surprises Act. I suspect that most of us are familiar with the terms in-network and out-of-network when it comes to our healthcare insurance, but I'm sure that there are many beneficiaries who may not be. So allow me to provide an answer, an analogy, a distinction in an industry that we are all familiar with to potentially provide clarity, and that is the restaurant industry. This is an event that did not occur and hopefully never will. But let's suppose for a moment that for my wedding anniversary, I wanted to take my wife out to eat at a very special, elegant restaurant. I called a few days before the date I wanted just to make sure I could get a reservation. When I called, I was asked several questions. One, have you ever dined with us before so we can pull up your record? I said, no. Number two, do you have a dining membership number? I said no, and asked for what this is. They explained it's a way for us to see if you are in our network of restaurants and how payment will be rendered for services ahead of time. All restaurants are using this process now. And number three, if not in network, what are the last four, excuse me, what are the last four numbers of your social? We can look it up that way. Once I got all of that resolved, so I thought, I gave them the date and time for the requested reservation. I was informed that they would call me the night before and tell me what time my reservation would be, would be. When I arrived at that predetermined time, we were seated. But before being given menus, we were approached by a person who asked us how we planned to pay for the meal and requested the credit card number. I innocently asked why that was needed and was informed that since I was out of network, we needed to guarantee payment ahead of time. Finally, we were given menus, and I noticed that there are no prices. When queried about this, I was told prices are determined at the end of the meal and are based on our network charges, but since we were out of network, our prices needed to be determined at the end of the meal, and they may vary depending on the program. When the meal was over, we received multiple checks and were responsible for all balances, starting with the the chef, who was a steak specialist, but could cook other items at extra cost. The waiter, the salad specialist, the dessert specialist, the dishwasher, and three more. Needless to say, our night was less than special, not enjoyable, and unexpectedly more expensive. Now let's fast forward to the real time today's healthcare environment. My restaurant scenario is analogous to what we are dealing with in the healthcare world every day. The No Surprises Act is designed to prevent or minimize such a consequence in our medical billing. Thankfully, there is no need for a No Surprises Act in other industries yet. Last comment. Since this is a new segment for Talk 10 Tuesdays, I would request of listeners and readers to please leave comments so we could learn how to better provide you with entertainable yet educational commentaries regarding our healthcare system. Thanks and back to you, Chuck.
1: Thank you very much. That was Dr. John Zellum. He is the founder of Streamlined Solutions Consulting, and Dr. Zellum is also the physician advisor for Cameron memorial community hospital and that's going to be a wrap for our special 60-minute live edition of talked in tuesday and we thank our good friends at Pine a for sponsoring today's special edition and i also want to thank our panelists today shannon aconda rose dunn cheryl erickson dennis jones Lori johnson dr james kennedy kevin lasser timothy powell stanley knockamson brianna santoli and of course dr john zellum and a special thanks to our co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. And remember, you can listen to all the Talk 10 Tuesday broadcasts on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us and give us a review. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting with Talk 10 Tuesday and ICD-10 Monitor. Have a great week, everybody.
0: Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.